Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. In this episode, I'm joined by the chief exec of a major advertising agency, someone who talks music on the radio, and someone with an Elvis Costello project bubbling away in the background. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Neil Davies. Hi, Stu. How are you? I'm really good, Neil. How are you doing this morning? I'm very excited. It's uh, obviously at the time of recording, the Beatles Get Back documentary has just dropped, so I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to be on the podcast because I'm a huge fan, and you know, just to to get paid for talking about Elvis Costello is my dream, so thank you for enabling that for me. <laughs> I, th- I think my people and your people need to have a, another conversation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we are a little bit giddy because we uh, we both watched Get Back last night as well. So um, yeah, so if we get a little bit uh, excitable, that's probably why. And I wonder if we, you know, we could look forward to the Peter Jackson sort of six-hour edit of Elvis's Almost Blue South Bank show special at some point in the future. That'd be that fun. would be wonderful, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, listen, Neil, I know a lot of people will recognise your voice from talking about music on the radio over in Ireland, where you are. And music is your great passion, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I work in the advertising industry, which I'm delighted to say is a, a form of creative expression. But of uh, the, the form of creative expression that I keep coming back to is music. You know, I'm a, a failed musician myself. I was brought up in a very musical household, not because anybody played an instrument, but because my parents loved music as well. Um, my mum was into kind of Dylan and the Beatles and my dad was into uh, the Kinks and the Who and the Stones. So I got kind of both ends of the spectrum and, and my dad was a massive Motown and Stax fan as well. So I always had fantastic records to dip into as a kid. And it's funny that as you kind of got the opportunity to dive into Elvis Costello later on, you begin to see a lot of those references showing up again and again. So I grew up in a very kind of musically influenced household and I guess that's where I kind of first came across Costello as well because we would watch Top of the Pops you know it was always on and we'd be able to comment about things from you know from my dad saying listen to what the drummer's playing on the on on the bass drum to like you get my dad drummed a little bit but just getting into the the nuance of music And, and that's kind of where I first came across Costello I guess when Oliver's Army was a hit and I would have been nine or nearly ten. And what about starting your own record collection from that point what were some of your earliest purchases and when did Elvis come into the picture for you in terms of going out and buying them I think the first single I ever actually bought with my own money was um Mull of Kintyre by Wings when I'll have been eight it's not one I go back to that often I must admit but um that was kind of the first thing but as I started you know around the turn of the the 70s and into the into the early 80s, music was actually quite, I mean, music's always very exciting when you're that age. But I think that was a particularly interesting time, even through a chart lens, that you were getting increasingly kind of left field or alternative bands having huge hits. So it was as much as you would see, you know, ABBA, but there was also the specials or Dexies or the Jam and or, or the Undertones. Or then even when my kind of big pop phase came, Adam and the Ants, if you go back to listen to Kings of the Wealth Frontier now, it doesn't sound like a number one album. It's absolutely 
barking mad bizarre and out there. But that was the, the nature of the charts at the time. And Costello was very much a part of that when he had a big hit. So Oliver's Army, I was aware of. Um, and, you know, you'd see that on Saturday morning kids TV. And I remember it getting my dad's seal of approval as well. Accidents Will Happen was got, got a load of airplay. And then it was Can't Stand Up For Falling Down, then nothing, then Good Year For The Roses, and then nothing. And at the time when I'm buying albums for the first time in like 81 and 82, and I'm buying Adam and the Ants and I'm buying The Police and I'm buying OMD and I'm buying Ultravox and The Undertones and The Clash, um, because Trust and Imperial Bedroom weren't hits, um, or did have no hit singles on them. I wasn't aware of those things. He literally went off the radar because my lens was what was in the in the charts and in smash hits and on, on top of the pop. So I missed those great records. And it was 83 when I bought my first Costello single, which was actually Pills and Soap, because it had kind of barged its way into the charts. It seemed to have some sort of political narrative to it on the eve of a general election. Um, he was on top of the pops performing it. And I bought it and I, I played it and I played it. And I look, it's, it's kind of ironic that I, I think we're contributing to the ashtrays of emotion playlist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. um, that was what Pills and Soap was. And in the meantime, I'd gone back and, and, and bought second-hand copies of a few things that I thought I probably should have. Oliver's Army and Pump It Up and, and I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. But this was the first single that I bought live. And then from there, you know, Punch the Clock happened. And I was, I was immersed for life from that point onwards. Mm. And Elvis's 80s output is at the heart of the project that you're working on at the moment. And we'll sort of get into real detail in a few moments because your 80s song selection takes us into that really nicely. But just broadly for the moment, you are spending time with your pen and your electric typewriter looking at something to do with Elvis's 80s music. Yeah, and um, this is a project I've been working on for a while, but but somehow managing to to run a company and then move continents, which I have done in the last <laughs> four years, has, has gotten in the way a little bit. Um, I was always fascinated by the fact that the Beatles were able to put out two albums a year with such alarming regularity. And then when you realise that it, it's quite a rarity, Dylan managed it. Um, a few of the, the, the early punk bands managed it. The Stranglers did it, The Dam did it, and the, the Jam did it, but not particularly well in most of those cases, that there was always a a drop off in quality of material. But when I kind of got my head around the fact that, you know, right there in the middle of my A-level period, Elvis Costello released two albums, which I think are the high point of his career, King of America and Blood and Chocolate, that that I felt was worthy of reflection and, 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 and being commented upon. But the fact that they're not just two albums, they're not two just, just very, very good albums. They're two very, very different albums. And not only musically are they very different, they tell an enormously important story about identity, about being a pop star, about fame, and about so many different things, which are very apparent in the lyrics of those two albums, but also very apparent in the lyrics of some of the songs on Goodbye Cruel World as well. So initially the book started off and is, is largely written as a, an analytical understanding of King of America and and blood and chocolate but i'm now adding more and more stuff about goodbye cruel world as well which is bizarre that the album that's been lauded as his worst is up there with what i think are two of his best mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, we'll we'll dig into that in a little bit more detail uh, in a few moments. But let's take a look at the first of the songs that you've picked out to discuss. As you say, we're building a playlist on this season called Ashtrays of Emotion. I've asked you, as with all of my guests, to pick five Costello tracks to add to the playlist, a song each from the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, and from 2010 up to the present day. And I have to say, Neil, you did so with the most meticulously laid out spreadsheets that any guest has done so far. So thank you for that. First up, your choice from the 1970s. Released on Armed Forces in January 1979, Senior Service. When I first got Armed Forces, I hated Senior Service. Really? Genuinely. I, I just thought it was it was such a weak track to go second, and it was a bit of a an insubstantial filling sandwiched in between Accidents Will Happen and, and Oliver's Army. Um, but last year, when the, the remastered box set came out of Armed Forces, I really, really, really got into it. I think because... It was the one track that I probably had the chance to revisit and dive into a lot more because it had always been skipped mm. um, as far as I was concerned. And when you go back, it's, it's a very odd Elvis Costello and the Attractions track. It's kind of it's kind of cliched, quirky, jerky new wave in the way that Devo might have done or some of the, the Berlin era Bowie stuff is that, that I know they were listening to a lot at the time. But it's such an odd track. And... I actually started looking online and figured out that they've Costello has only ever played it four times live. Oh, and really? Three of those, those occasions were in like December 78, January 79 and February 79, mm. where they literally played it once a month. And you can imagine them saying, but we're not doing that again. We've got to give it a try because it's on the new album, mm. but just kept walking away from it because it's clearly a very difficult song to play. But in retrospect, I love it. It just, I was able to view it amongst that you know boxed set of remastered stuff as something new and fresh and it really really stuck out as as an unrepresentative yet representative song of his 70s output i didn't realize he'd played it so few times i was thinking when when you chose it i thought i don't think i've ever seen him do this live and You've demonstrated that exactly. Um, Costello is a master, a maniac of the word game, tossing puns, double entendres, and inverted cliches like confetti. That's what the Washington Post said of Armed Forces. And I think, you know, senior service is a great example of that, isn't it? Without question. I mean, the, the, the line that always stuck out for me is that, that, that whole line of the breath that you took too late, it's a death that, that's worse than fate. But actually, when I got older, one of the lines that really, really stuck out was that, that that kind of bridge part where he says, they took me to the office and they told me very carefully the way that I could benefit from death and disability. Mm. And obviously that's, you know, the recruiting sergeant talking about a life in the army. But it was only later in life when I was signing insurance documents at work that I realised that death and disability is an actual legal term in the insurance industry, mm. which obviously lodged in his head when somebody stuck a document in front of him before an American tour. And that's that line suddenly came to life. But it's certainly one of his most fantastic tracks, definitely. Yeah. 
I remember subtly quoting a line from this when I was at university when I said it's a death worse than fate and of course somebody who didn't know the song went actually I think the saying is it's a fate worse than it's like like, yeah okay okay they're not listening to this podcast right now I guarantee it (laughs) leave it there yeah so recorded at Eden Studios in 1978, released on Armed Forces in January 79, the album uh, reaching number two in the UK album charts. Let's move on to the next choice from our playlist and excitingly, our first ever selection from Goodbye Cruel World. Picture of the hotel room, kind of took it as a challenge that nobody had picked anything from Goodbye Cruel World and um, which I think is a shame because it's a much maligned album clearly it does sound like um, when it was made it sounds like a mid-80s album it sounds like a, a Langer and Win Stanley album but actually you know if you listen to some of the madness stuff from the same time albums which have been revisited and people have said actually that was really good like The Rise and the Fall or Keep Moving a lot of the songs have that sort of feel to them. And the kind of glossy pop sound that it's best remembered for or unremembered for only really happens on The Only Flame in Town, which was the the first track and the big single um, on it. And I always maintain that if some of the the less exciting tracks on side two were replaced by even Turning the Town Red, which was a B-side at the time, and an absolute cracker of a track, people might think about that album differently. But it also includes, I think, one of his best, very best, um, cover versions, which is I Want to Be Loved, absolutely beautiful um, rendition of an old soul track, wonderfully, wonderfully done. Hmm. And the song you've chosen from the album is A Room With No Number, recorded by Elvis and the Attractions, produced by Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley, and released on Goodbye Cruel World in June 84. Uh, tell me a little bit about this one and why you've chosen this. I, lo- I love this song, and and there are there are several reasons why for me, it sticks out and it kind of becomes the pivotal point really in uh, in, in the book idea, because um, I was very privileged, by the way, to, to interview uh, Bruce Thomas once um, to talk about um, the making of Blood and Chocolate and the, the unmaking of King of America from his point of view um, for the book. And one of the things he said about this period of, uh, of time was that Elvis didn't want to be a pop star anymore and was actively rebelling against it. He just wanted to be an elder statesman. And King of America is very much that elder statesman statement, um, if you know what I mean. But um, the, the, the pop sensibilities of, of this album kind of mask the fact that there are some very, very dark autobiographical tracks on there. The Only Fame in Town, um, Home Truth, Room With Honor. The first three songs on the album are really about relationships and infidelity at a time when Um, Costello was going through massive changes in his life and there's a lot of regret in those songs and a lot of darkness in those songs that's masked by the the kind of pop stylings of them but Room With No Number has that line in it which sets up everything that comes next originally it was printed on the lyrics as I wish you could be uh, I wish you could be the man I was before he the man he was before he was me and it became on subsequent rewriting of lyrics and, and Costello in his own sleeve notes, I wish he could be the man he was before he was me. And when you marry that with Bruce Thomas's comment about 
he didn't want to be a pop star anymore. You realize that the that the richness of the Elvis Costello identity was something he was walking away from. And you remember that by the time that King of America came out, the face and the NME were running articles about the very public suicide of Elvis Costello, that he changed his name, not just to his old name of Declan Patrick McManus, but he added a name to it, Aloysius. And you've got this crisis of identity that Costello only appears in the Costello show on the album. Then he makes an Elvis Costello in the Attractions album in which he appears as both Elvis Costello and Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus and Napoleon Dynamite and Eamon Singer on the same album. And this whole crisis of identity or his challenge to the listener about what does pop starter means actually comes out as a throwaway line, a seemingly throwaway line in this beautiful um, pop song about two lovers meeting behind closed doors in a hotel room. Hmm. A scenario from a television play that had terrified me as a child, according to Elvis, with the music adapted from a previous song called Mystery Voice. Um, you described this one to me as a bit of a gateway drug into the albums that followed, which is a really interesting way to look at it because it does get very easily dismissed. And as we were saying before we started recording, I think to some degree the narrative of this album is set by that, you know, very funny line from Elvis in the liner notes about, you know, congratulations, you've just purchased our worst album. And it's unfortunate in a way because I think too many people take that at face value and, and never bother to really analyse the album or revisit it in a critical way. Yeah, I mean, he's given you permission to dismiss it, and 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 that's wrong. And something else that, that that always occurred to me is, if you look at The Clash, for example, London Calling is quite rightly seen as The Clash's best album. But my favourite album by The Clash is Combat Rock, just because of the time that I bought it in my life and the way I got into it. And I happen to be the same with, with Punch the Clock and with Goodbye Cruel World. They were the first two Costello albums that I bought, you know, more or less on the day of release, getting on the bus into town and going to the HMV and coming home and excited to play them. Um, and as much as, for me, the high watermark is King of America and Blood and Chocolate, you kind of don't get there without one of my favourite albums, which is Goodbye Cruel World. And the beautiful thing about it is that because Costello had to walk away from everything that Goodbye Cruel World was, he gave himself permission to work with jazz musicians and rockabilly musicians and American musicians and the attractions on King of America and then do another Attractions album. But the reality is if he'd done Blood and Chocolate straight after Goodbye Cruel World, he would have been slated by the press as just being, he's just gone back to 1978 because the last album failed. But actually that sense of identity and the freedom of identity sets up the next 20 or 30 years of Costello's career. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. I don't have to be stuck to anything rigid anymore. And, and that's what I love about King of America and Blood and Chocolate. But you don't get there without Goodbye Cruel World. The dress code for listening to Dangerous Amusements is strictly turquoise pyjamas and motorcycle hat only. You mentioned that you've interviewed a number of people for the book, including Bruce Thomas. And Bruce very recently referenced you in a, an interview that he did on another show. What was your experience of getting together with him and, and talking to him about that period? My, my route into Bruce was to play the old school tie. Um, not that we went to a posh school, but we both went to the same school, right. in the same state school in stockton on Tees. And he was born just around the corner from where I grew up. So that was kind of my intro. I'd, I'd bought both of his books. I bought um, um, his most recent biography and there was contact details in there. So I just reached out to him through that. And he was 
quite happy to meet. I happen to be back visiting in the UK from America and uh, I, I took a train journey out to meet him and we sat and had dinner and it was absolutely fascinating. I was extremely tired because Disappearing Ink, the Costello book had come out the day before. So I actually had stayed up on the flight on the way over skimming it. And as you know, it's a very heavy book, yeah. a, a very dense book and a very poorly signposted book anyway. So that there was no way of, um, of just saying, oh, I'm just going to go to the chapter about the mid eighties. Now I'm going to go to the chapter about how much he doesn't like Bruce Thomas. You actually <laughs> had to flick through the whole thing back and forth. I'll show you actually, you see, look at all the, the bookmarks in there for different references yeah. about um, King of America or Blood and Chocolate or Bruce that's in there that I shared with him. And, and actually the first part of the conversation was Bruce saying, so what's he said about me? I, I Which was, was kind of fun. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether he'd got a copy and whether he intended to read the book. He certainly hadn't at that time. Right. And um, I think it was safe to say that relations were pretty frosty between the two of them. But um, look, that was a great experience. And actually, as he said on that podcast, the really fun thing, although at the time I was slightly horrified, was when I said so... We talked about the build-up to King of America and the attraction's lack of involvement in that. And then we talked about Blood and Chocolate. And he said, I can just remember recording it in Olympia Studios. I don't remember actually any of the songs. He said, actually, I've never listened to Blood and Chocolate. And uh, he kind of apologised a little bit for that. And I said, well, my memories of it are, are, are much deeper than yours. But the way I talked about it was, was you know, the, the, the rich depth of, of some of the material on there. And he said, no, I just remember it as a wall of noise. And I remember it as nobody talking to each other and, and, and not get, getting on well with one another. But then God love him. After we finished dinner, about three days later, he um, it wasn't a three day dinner, by the way. But after we'd finished dinner, about three days later, he sent me an email with a track by track breakdown of Blood and Chocolate, which he called Blood and Snot. And it was his recollection of each song, having listened to it for the first time. And he said, it's a much better album than I remembered, much more coherent album than you remembered with much better songs on it that you remembered. So I was kind of glad that what felt like a, a black spot in one of my heroes' lives was became a, a kind of an area for shared values afterwards. It was a great night. And uh, I do owe it to Bruce to actually finish the bloody book now. Yeah, yeah. And what about those conversations? Did you get the sense that there was going to be any score settling or any myth building in the stories he was telling you from that period? I think from Bruce's angle, there would be no score settling and more um, getting his side of the, the argument across. And um, his some of the things he said in that recent podcast interview in America were, were actually very, very revealing and, 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 and very consistent with some of the things that he said. But it did sound like that um, in recent years and months subsequent to Elvis's recent illness and uh, the fact that they collaborated together again on the Spanish model project. Sounds that they're talking to one another again. I'm not sure if that'll go much further, but at least there's some, some thawing of the ice and the relationships there. I mean, there is no doubt that Elvis Costello and the attractions were a phenomenal force. And, you know, somewhere at the back of, of, of Elvis's mind, it might rankle him a little bit that he's in the, the Hall of Fame with that band and not necessarily just by himself. But mm. that probably is testament to the the power and the reputation that they had as a as a quartet. And I know that your favourite album or one of your favourite albums is, is Brutal Youth. Um, I never got to see the, the Costello with the attractions. Uh, my first show actually was a solo show on the, the Spike Tour with Nick Lowe, which was a 
actually in Liverpool, the Royal Court. Mm. Um, fantastic, fantastic gig. And subsequently saw him with a Route 5 solo with the um, with a Brodsky quartet. And then I remember just reading that day that the attractions were going to be on the, the, the new record. And I, I just thought it was the most amazing news I'd ever, ever had. And then that period between 94 and maybe 96, where they played so often, you almost got sick of seeing them. Not that you did, but, you know, a few nights at the Royal Albert Hall, you know, four consecutive Fridays in, in Shepherd's Bush, um, you know, playing with James Burton and the attractions when, when Kojak Variety came out. What a, a privilege it was to see that band back at the height of their powers, supporting what I thought were two brilliant albums again, Brutal Youth and, and All This U Useless Beauty. So it was, um, uh, yeah, I'm a big attractions fan. Mm. Let's put it that way. Mm. And distance seems to have given Bruce some perspective on the way things happened with those albums in the mid 80s. I've seen interviews where he says he he now recognises what Elvis was doing when he was creating a particular atmosphere in the studio because he wanted that to inform the music they were playing. So that sort of shows a, a level of maturity and having that distance from the periods allowed Bruce to perhaps see the bigger picture of, of what Elvis was trying to do creatively at that time. Exactly. I mean, there's also an interesting thing about musicians, though, that and that, I don't think Blood and Chocolate is, is, is just an extreme example of that. Musicians seem seemingly never really listen to the songs that they've or the albums that they've made. They don't dive into them in the way that fans do. They will record them, play them live and then move on. And I very much get the sense that he's been forced to delve back into the backpack back catalogue, either by me or by the whole Spanish model um, project, for example, in a way that most musicians don't. I remember seeing on, if you go back and watch Beatles anthology rather than the get back thing, the number of times that George, McCartney clearly listens to everything all the time, but you get the sense that George Harrison and Ringo Starr during their interviews on anthology are kind of struggling to remember what was on that album. Did I record that? Am I playing bass on that one? And they literally left the studio and moved on and did other things. It was very much a day job um, for them. So it, it, it is nice when you get the chance to hear musicians reflect on things that they've almost been forced to reflect on a little bit. Yeah. I always think the George thing is a little bit performative on some of those interviews, isn't it? Yeah. You know, no, this is so insignificant to me. I can't remember. Um, Was I in the Beatles? Yeah. <laughs> um, so where are you up to now with the book? What's next for you in terms of getting to the finishing line with it? I, I think I'm going to try and take as much of the Christmas break as possible to, to knock it into shape. I'd say a good three quarters to 80% of it. Um, is written. The glaring gap now really is is turning goodbye, cruel world from what was initially a a pivotal paragraph into much more of a substantial chapter. So I'm going to have to go and dive back in and and write more about that. But it's quite a um, uh, it's in quite a good stage, I think. my fondest wish to go where I can not be captured laid on a decorated dish the song that you're adding to our playlist from the 1990s is I Want to Vanish, released on All This Useless Beauty in 1996 and you heard this I think before it was officially released didn't you? I did. Um, 
I was before I got into advertising, I, I worked in the in the photographic industry and um, again, a, a very creative, expressive industry. And somebody I knew very well was um, Rankin, the guy who founded Days and Confused and did lots of uh, album covers. In fact, did um, the Painted From Memory um, album cover for, uh, for Costello and Bacharach, of course. And um, uh, he was doing, in, uh, Days and Confused were doing a big feature story on um, Costello because Rankin was a fan and his then wife was a huge fan. And he just slipped me a cassette one day and when I put it on, I realized it was <laughs> it was a, a dozen Elvis Costello songs I'd not heard before, which was amazing. And it was the All This Useless Beauty album. And and actually, it's funny that, that Bruce Thomas in that recent um, podcast absolutely slates All This Useless Beauty. And I think I think he hasn't listened to that very well because I think it's a wonderful record. Yeah, I, I think the songs are beautiful. I think the arrangements are amazing. I think it's a great inventive attractions album if you think the attractions would do two styles they would do beautifully inventive like you get on imperial bedroom or they do the best damn garage rock band in the world like on blood and chocolate or this year's model or brutal youth and this is more in the the inventive kind of fluid style of things i think the arrangements are wonderful i think the songs are gorgeous and and curiously despite it being a great attractions album the one that always sticks out to me is that is the last track I Want to Vanish, which is a beautiful, subtle, poignant statement with, um, you know, with the Brodsky Quartet and other classical musicians. It's not an attractions track at all. And it, in terms of its sequencing as an album, he's kind of saying, yeah, I'm back with the attractions, but look, I can still do other things. And that's the last thought I'm going to leave you with. And then obviously the attractions were no more uh, very soon after that. But I, I love all this useless beauty. I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous record. And I Want to Vanish is just delightful. Originally written for June Tabor, Elvis said she found the black humour in the song. Perhaps I reserved the more private meaning of the song for myself. The bleaker implication of the text was not something I'd expect anyone else to relish. And and it's it's heartbreakingly sad, isn't it? Oh, my God. Not in places. I mean, all, all the way through. I mean, he tries to lighten the mood with the the dog peeing on the signpost joke, mm. which if you've ever seen him play it live, he will always raise his eyebrows mm. and acknowledge the joke with the crowd. But it, it is a very seemingly very solid, uh, sad song up there with, you know, favourite hour for its almost funereal suicidal intent, perhaps. Mm. Maybe the perfect final song for the final Attractions album. I think I think there's something in that, Stu, definitely. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I would take a number of songs from this album has been among my very favourite Elvis songs, uh, Complicated Shadows, I love. The title track is beautiful and the other end of the telescope we've talked about on the podcast before. I, and this was the first album actually of his that I bought in real time. I think you were saying um, sort right. of uh, Punch the Clock was the, the first one that you got in real time. Yeah. This was the first one for me. I'd caught up by this point. So this was uh, sixth form and going out and, and getting it. And um, I think it's far better than its reputation would suggest. Completely agree. And, and another thing, because of events that happened subsequently, you know, him him moving on in life and him moving on from the attractions, it, it kind of gets parked again. And, and you're right, it's it's probably, look, over the 30-odd the albums, there is, there's so much good stuff out there, let's face it. There are very few duds, really, even good by Cruel World. You talk your way out of this Did someone flip your switch? Now there is only right or wrong 
can you tell which is which? But it was so much easier when I was cruel. Let's move into the 2000s now, and your pick for the playlist from this decade is When I Was Cruel number one. Yeah, When I Was Cruel number one, not... When I Was Cruel, number two, which of course is that beautiful sampled track or sampled title track on the album. Um, and this song was actually buried away a little bit. It was on the, the B side of the Tear Off Your Own Head, It's a Doll Revolution single, uh, which is a great song, by the way. But I was kind of amazed when I heard it that it was a throwaway track. And in fact, actually, I think the first time I heard it was on a, a CD sampler like a promo cd that i picked up in america of uh, doll revolution in which it's the fourth track after two remixes and it isn't credited it isn't mentioned on the sleeve so it's kind of always had an extra layer of intrigue for me but the fact that this genuinely amazing song at first i thought it must have been a bob dylan cover or something because of the way it was arranged and the mm. you know an outtake from kojak variety or something it is an amazing song and and possibly if push came to shove, I had to say, what is your single favourite Costello tune? It would be this one. Really? It's amazingly structured in that it seems to have three choruses. I mean, it, you know, it has a verse and a chorus and then another chorus and then there's another chorus. It, it's, it's hook after hook after hook. It's a beautiful performance by the imposters. It's got that gorgeous combination of, of atmosphere and Hammond organ and pace. And then over the top, this beautiful tune is delivering some of his most vitriol vitriolic lyrics, which, as you know, is up against some pretty stiff competition yeah. in his back catalogue. So I can't listen to this song without thinking, why the hell wasn't this on the album? Because it's better than quite a lot of the songs on um, When I Was Cruel. And why has he held it back? And you kind of think, are the words something so personal to him that he's actually edited himself or censored himself for the first time, which is an intriguing thing. But dear God, what a brilliant song. Hmm. The words poured out of you, you fraud. I guess you don't know what pain is. Don't pretend you're innocent. Do I look like a fool? I guess you've forgotten when I was cruel. I mean, all the way through, it's absolutely blistering. And it's on a par with something like um, How To Be Dumb, isn't it? For the vitriol that he pours into the song. It's, it's a bit nastier than How To Be Dumb, mm. I think. I think the gloves seem very much off on this one. And, and I always wondered whether... He was having a bit of a dig at, at, at us Anorak fans in there as well, where, you know, when I was cruel and I could make you very sorry and lonely cowards followed me like ghouls. You know, the fact that we're pouring over his words here now, are we, are we those lonely cowards following him in a ghoulish way? Perhaps we are. And if that's the case, then I'll wear it proudly. Um, but he then, he then punchlines that with, um, and you liked me too. You know, he's he's putting whoever he's talking to in that same category as well, which is, again, if that a stab in the back, that's a stab in the front, I think. Hmm. I'm not going to abandon my dreams of vengeance anyway, no matter what he thinks. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a great song. Yeah. So would you have, you would have found room for this on the album. What would you, uh, how would you rejig when I was cruel? Oh, I mean, it, there, there are some songs. All right, here's a controversial theory. Standing um, by. Yeah, get out the whiskey. This is going to take a while. Costello is brilliant, but needs to edit a bit more. And some of his better albums are the shorter ones that are more of a concise statement. There's a reason why this year's model is 
perennially remembered as one of the greatest because it's it's a short handful of similarly themed songs same as punch the clock same as blood and chocolate you know you could argue that um the only long album that really really holds together is imperial bedroom because there's such a variety of the sounds on there but by and large when he's verging into the the 13 and 14 tracks on an album it gets a bit long and i think that complicates um, his legacy some ways. I mean, even things like, you know, Mighty Like a Rose, you could pick 10 or a dozen corking tracks from that and it would be lauded as an absolutely brilliant album. And I think When I Was Cruel is in the same boat. as I've had arguments with people before about Trust. Trust, you could lose a couple of tracks and it would be mm. even better than, um, than it actually is. But that's being picky and being a bit of a spoiled child. But there are a few songs on, on what would be side two of, um, of When I Was Cruel that, that, that could drop out. Because things like 45 and Spooky Girlfriend and Doll Revolution and When I Was Cruel itself are just amazing tracks, genuinely brilliant songs. And I think demonstrated a, a kind of a punch to his selection criteria that should have been afforded to some of the other songs as well. Mm. He takes the album out on a huge world tour and you got to meet the band, didn't you, on that tour? Um, I did. One of the uh, advertising accounts that I ran in New York was the Absolute Vodka account, which um, used to run a lot of stuff in uh, Rolling Stone magazine. So I was taken by the publishers of Rolling Stone to see um, Costello and the Imposters on this tour at, um, at the Beacon Theatre in New York. I was going to go anyway, but um, went out to dinner beforehand got to the concert and realized that the promote the publisher realized that they had the tickets for the previous night's show. Right. And uh, at the front doors being Rolling Stone don't mean shit. So we went round to the, the stage door and the minute you said the word Rolling Stone and uh, a business card was shown, we were ushered in given, um, given guest passes and ushered in. They didn't have seats for us. So they put us at the side of the stage <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is all right. And, um, there was a power cut about two songs in. I think he'd opened with Mystery Dance and it fell apart. And then they had another go and it fell apart again. So the band all went off. And Costello just sat at the front of the stage by himself and did the old unplugged, literally unplugged a cappella thing. So it was a fabulous, fabulous night. And then at the end of the show, they said, um, you know, if you, you stick around, you'll get to meet the band. And everybody came out. So the imposters signed my pass. But Elv never showed, which was a bit of a shame. I think I saw him three times on that tour, and it was uh, that was probably the highlight by a long, long way. Mm. Well, we must be coming up, in fact, in a few weeks' time, probably to be in twenty years of the Imposters together as well, and longer than the attractions were together. But a bit like Ronnie Wood with the Rolling Stones, there's still a tendency to think that it's quite a new thing and hasn't been around that long. Yeah, he's the new boy. He's the new boy, exactly. Well, listen, you, you mentioned a few moments ago that you'd, you've been to see Elvis dozens of times over the years. So aside from getting to meet the, the band on the When I Was Cruel tour, what are some of the other highlights of your gig going time with Elvis? The first time I saw him do one of those a cappella things at the, at the, uh, the Royal Albert Hall, couldn't call it an unexpected number four. Absolutely breathtaking. Um, in some ways, they kind of all blur in together um, uh, a lot you know every show seems to be a good one i've really enjoyed some of the solo shows um i really enjoyed his 60th birthday party show at the carnegie hall that was that was quite something um i loved seeing him um with the roots 
Mm. Um, oh, did you did, see uh, them? Did you? Right. Yeah, the, they did a show at the, the the Brooklyn Bowl, which is a bowling alley. Yeah, yeah. In Brooklyn, hence the name, um, to launch the <laughs> album and and managed to uh, blag into that one, which was superb. Um, I think. I mean, look, the first time I saw him was, um, as I said, was Liverpool in '89, and just loved it because suddenly you're kind of just glaring up at him and, and thinking my God, that's Elvis Costello. That's a guy who I've only ever seen on the telly or on violence. Suddenly I'm there in front of him. I saw him at a tiny venue in either 99 or 2000 at a private gig in New York City at a venue called The Metronome, which is just him and Steve Naive together doing 15 tunes. Absolutely fabulous, intimate show. Um, I saw him at the, um, when he uh, most of the things he did at the Meltdown Festival when he uh, mm. curated that in the mid-90s. I've been very, very lucky. And, and actually, moving to the States, he does play in America a lot more than he plays back home. So we were a little spoiled over there seeing him. You know, you know, you, you could see him in New York City and then see him in New Jersey the next night quite easily, and that was always a, a good thing to do. What you going to say to me? Will you be betraying me? Come and me. final track you're putting on the playlist for us comes from the 2010 up to the present day category and you've gone for a song from wise up ghost neil oh but do you know what i mean look his his everything this millennium this century has been with the exception of north been absolutely brilliant you know when i was cruel national ransom momofuku are absolutely brilliant albums but they felt like costello albums if you know what i mean mm. and i think that the the collaboration with The Roots, with Questlove, and with Stephen Mandel on, on Wise Up Ghost, just changed the dynamic a little bit. And I think I think he was not forced to up his game, but I think he couldn't help but up his game because people were bringing different sonic experiences and approaches to the music that they were playing. And if you'd said, okay, this is going to be a remix album, which largely features recycled lyrics from previous records, does that sound like a good idea? You'd probably go, well, I'll probably buy it. But dear God, Wise Up Ghost is up there with Imperial Bedroom and King of America and Blood and Chocolate and Punch the Clock as one of my most played Costello albums. I just find it beautifully refreshing. I find it a, a really interesting groove. And you just feel him being re-energised through the lens of working with those musicians. And the great thing about Questlove and the great thing about Stephen Mandel, the producer, is that they are equally great musical magpies as Costello is. It really feels like you've got three collaborators there who were able to, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And even the, you know, the obscure samples on there, other than recycling his own music, um, is just absolutely fascinating. Come the meantime, I could have picked any track from, from Wise Up Ghost. Genuinely don't think there's a duff one on it. Um, come the meantime just feels to be the one that has the best example of of groove and and Costello's lyrics working together in a beautiful way. Great track, great track. 
Mm. Questlove and Mandel, also big fans of Elvis Costello. Uh, Elvis first plays with The Roots on the Jimmy Fallon TV show over in America. And then when he asked them to pick one of his own songs to play, they chose an old obscure arrangement of High Fidelity and then played as Elvis's walk-on music on the show, Secret Lemonade Drinker as well. So lots of meta Elvis references there, which I think he obviously enjoyed and then that develops into this uh, into this full-scale collaboration and yeah I, I really love this I'll go back to this a lot this record I think it's where am I going to put it in the rankings very high let's just say very high yeah it's it's definitely and, and surprisingly so and it's something that I will revisit and you know and, and, and just immerse myself in and and you're right and, and I think it's because because Mandel and Questlove are fans as well. They're upping their game. Hmm. You know, it, it, it is a collaboration of people who genuinely want to work with each other. It's a great record. The the uh, I even started digging out. I'm currently in the phase of my Costello obsession that I'm, I'm digging out the original vinyl releases of the songs that he's covered. So like the original right. versions of... You know, I want to be loved and can't stand up for falling down and good year for the roses and sweet dreams and I'm your toy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically, if he's, if he's done a cover version on a single, I'll buy it. And then the other thing I'm trying to do is dive into all of the samples on um, right. on Wise Up Ghost. Um, and I, incidentally, if you've listened to the song that When I Was Cruel, number two samples um, by me, Mina. absolutely yeah. delightful track. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant song. Um, but this one, come the meantime, samples a soul band called Glass House and their 1972 album, Thanks, I Needed That. Um, and the track is I Don't See Me In Your Eyes Anymore, which sounds like a Costello song anyway, <laughs> as yeah. titles go. Yeah. So I, it, it's that's the great thing about Costello. He always sends you off down rabbit holes for other things to research. And I think his... His mission in life is to is to make as many different musical magpies out there as he is, and, and damn, it's worked with me. Up Ghost released in October 2013. Elvis says, lyrically, it's like a series of bulletins of what's going on in the world. Some are rallying cries, some dealing, offering solace. And they weren't necessarily intending to make a record. In fact, he says the first the record company knew about it was when it was just about finished, and we asked them if they'd like to put it out. The album does come out. They do a number of appearances. And uh, just go back to the one you were telling us about, Neil, because I've, I've read about the, the Brooklyn show a lot and thought that is one that I would really, really love to have been. So what was the experience of seeing them together? It was, it was genuinely, the sound wasn't brilliant. I will say that, but it was a great, great show. And, and just the, the, again, that sense of pleasure that they were getting from being collaborators was probably amplified by the fact that they were getting to play live with one another. The other thing to remember is The Roots are possibly one of the most talented bunches of musicians you would ever, ever, ever come across. And they were already an amazing band, you know, that all of their hip hop records are basically records that they play themselves. Mandel adds stuff in terms of the production and the sampling, but they are a proper drum, bass, guitars, keys, horns uh, band. You know, they've backed Jay-Z, um, when he needed a live band. The other thing is they play live every night on 
the uh, on the chat show to which they are the the house band so their ability to play off of one another and just be locked in with each other is superb and i think that the sound let it down a little bit mm. but it was great they did they did it virtually every song on the album as i recall i think they did a cover version of ghost town like yes. specials yeah, yeah i think they did um uh, they did a lennon song from the plastic ono band album um, and they did, I think they did I Want You, was probably the only old school Costello song that they did. But it was one of those things where everybody in the audience was kind of grinning at one another going, we're here. Yeah. And that was kind of cool. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we've covered a lot of ground there, Neil, and we've got plenty to look forward to as well. You've got your project going away. We've got a new Elvis album, uh, very much in the offing in the early part of the new year as well. What have you made of anything you've heard we've we've got magnificent hurt as a single i don't know if you've heard any of the other tracks as well i haven't that's the only one i've, I've been able to um uh, dive into it's great it, it 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 feels like i'm sure there are going to be much better tracks on the album um uh, it, it's it's a good track it's it's it wasn't quite as 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 some of the other things i've i've heard recently because i've really enjoyed the last two records you know clockface and 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 look now in that they've again challenged you to think about what it is he does in a slightly different way because this was a return to to an old style styling, I, I maybe was hoping for something a bit more blistering. I was probably hoping for more of a I hope you're happy now sort of sound. But dear God, I'm being a spoiled child again, aren't I? <laughs> Brilliant. Neil, thanks very much for coming on. It's been really good fun to chat with you. Nice to meet you, sir. Delighted to, to, to be on the show. Good luck. Thank you, Neil. I really enjoyed that chat and I look forward to Neil's book in due course. You can find him on Twitter at The Davies and Mr. Davies on Instagram. This is the final episode of 2021, so I just want to thank you all for your support with the show this year. Everyone who's listened, shared, told people about the show, left a review and rating online, or if you've got in touch via Twitter, Instagram, or the website to give me your really kind messages, thank you all. I really appreciate all of the support that you've given to the show this year. Uh, and of course, thanks to all of the brilliant guests and fellow Elvis Costello fans who've appeared on Dangerous Amusements during 2021 as well. Wish all of you the very best for 2022, uh, a year in which we have a new Elvis Costello album and some live dates over here in the UK to look forward to. Uh, so plenty to get excited about. My final thank you as always to the man behind the theme music for the show, Gary Mulcahy. This was Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that seemed like a fine idea at the time.